The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Isaiah chapter 53. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. He had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows. name of the song, the great old hymn that we sang, Man of Sorrows, acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hid their face, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Father, as we look at the word today, as we delve into this section of your word, we pray that Christ will be seen. We pray that he'll be lifted up. We thank you for the one who came to give his life on our behalf, and we pray that he would be seen. In his name, amen. It's a Peanuts cartoon strip that uh, dealt with suffering uh, a while back, and uh, this is kind of the way it went. It says, uh, we're getting slaughtered, Schroeder, again. I I don't know what to do. Why do we have to suffer like that, Charlie Brown says. And Schroeder says, man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. What? He's quoting from the book of Job, Charlie Brown, 7th verse, 5th chapter. Actually, the problem of suffering is a very profound one, and, and then Lucy chimes in. If a person has bad luck, it's because he's done something wrong. That's what I always say. And Schroeder says, that's what Job's friend told him, but I doubt it. Uh, and what about Job's wife? I don't think she gets enough credit, says Lucy. <laughs> and then it goes on, and uh, Schroeder says, I think a person who never suffers, never matures, suffering is actually very important. Who wants to suffer? Don't be ridiculous, says Lucy. But pain is a part of life, and a person who speaks only of the patience of Job reveals he understands very little about the book. Now, the way I see it, and Charlie Brown says, good grief, I don't have a ball team, I've got a theological seminary. (laughs) The problem of suffering. Somebody's saying, great, I show up at Temple Bible Church on a Sunday morning to hear a sermon on suffering. Wow, that's not why I came here. But hopefully as we look at it, we will see our Savior in a little different light. Hopefully as we look at it, we will walk away with a more profound understanding of who he is, what he has done, and why we should worship him even more. Isaiah 53 has been called by one theologian the crowning jewel of the Old Testament. The crowning jewel of the Old Testament. Embedded in the story of tragedy is the hope of the ages. From verses that haunt the imagination, verses like verse 10 where it says, Now the Lord was pleased to crush him. From haunting verses... Pictures of the crucifixion of our Savior, what we'll see is the one who would be the Redeemer. We will see triumph emerge from tragedy. That's where we're headed this morning. Here's the one thing I want to remind you. One of the most astounding things about this passage is that it was written 700 years before Christ was born. 700 years before Christ came to earth, Isaiah writes these words. And you're going to see that these words can only refer to one person in all of human history. In writing 700 years in advance, we see that the Father is the orchestrator of human history to accomplish his purposes through our Savior. We'll also see through that, through understanding 700 years earlier, specific prophecies are fulfilled in Christ and Christ alone, which gives us assurance of the inspiration of the book we have in our hand or the book that you view on your app. What we recognize is the sovereign hand of God. And we'll see it in its beauty and its passion this morning as we look at our Savior. 
The text begins in Isaiah 53 in verses 2 and 3 with the poverty of our Savior. With the poverty of our Savior. He grew up before him like a tender shoot. The, the Hebrew word for tender shoot here is a word that refers to a new growth on a tree or a plant. It's a suckling. And what we see here is that he, that, that he had no stately form or majesty. He was a root out of parched ground. He was not a towering redwood. He was not a majestic oak. He's not even a blooming crepe myrtle we have throughout our community and homes. Or if you walk out the back door, you'll see some beautiful sage in full bloom right now. He didn't come as that way. He came like a root out of the ground. Isaiah is saying that his coming, when Christ came to our planet, He came not in pomp, not in circumstance, but he came in poverty, so to speak. The last Olympics were held in London in 2012. I I did some studying about the 2012 London Olympics this week. It was quite interesting. The the London Olympics was seven years in planning. Uh, Britain spent in excess of 14 billion, that's a B, billion U.S. dollars to put on that particular event. There were new facilities built, old facilities restored, 14 billion dollars, seven years of planning. The opening ceremony was quite spectacular. Some say it's the most magnificent open ceremony in the history of all the Olympics. And it's interesting, just that one night of entertainment, that one night of opening ceremony, over $50 million were spent. $50 million on one night. And that night and that opening ceremony was quite amazing. If you watch it, perhaps you remember it. There were literally tens of thousands of man hours placed into planning it. There were tens of million dollars spent on it. Seven years of planning a ceremony to be the memory of a lifetime. To be the memory of a lifetime those there, memory of a lifetime for over 200 million viewers around the world that watched it, or 200 million, and also a memory of a lifetime for the advertisers for NBC, they hoped. And so what we see is this majestic opening ceremony. It's absolutely amazing. Let me ask you a question. If you were given the assignment not to plan the opening event of the Olympics, but you were given the assignment to plan the coming of God to our planet, the coming of our Savior to earth, how would you plan it? Where would you do it? How would you make it happen? Would you do it as Prince George did this week to a worldwide audience of millions of viewers as he came to England to the royal family? Or would you do it like the opening of the Olympics where it could be broadcast worldwide so everyone could see it and every nation could participate? With all the pomp, all the circumstance, hundreds of millions of viewers. I would dare say none of us would have the audacity to suggest this. God, why don't you come to our planet and, and... We'll have the opening event in a barnyard. In fact, what we'll do, we'll forget about doctors and nurses, and we'll forget about labor and delivery rooms, and we won't talk about sterile environments or epidurals. We won't talk about birth announcements or blue nurseries for a boy. Come to our barnyard surrounded by animals, and we'll send a few shepherds in to worship you. Who would have the audacity to plan that? But that's how our Savior came. When you look at verses 2 and 3 of Isaiah 53, it describes the humble beginnings of our, of our Savior, which are incomprehensible. Isaiah poetically describes these beginnings. He's a tender shoot. He's new growth. He's a suckling. He's root out of parched ground. That is not a magnificent tree, but just a root sticking out of the ground. He had no stately form. He had no majesty. And if you look at, the, the, at verse 3, it says he was despised. He was forsaken. He was a man of sorrows. People hid their face from him. What Isaiah is saying is he was not some Hollywood hot stud glamour dude. That was not him. 
I asked the gals in our office, who's, who's the, who's the good-looking guys in Hollywood now, now, right now? And they told me it's uh, Matthew McConaughey, Hugh Jackman, and uh, George Clooney for the older ladies. So uh, <laughs> it tells you where these gals are. With their, no, they're great gals, actually. Had to tell me, they had to tell me who Hugh Jackman was. I didn't even know that guy. But, but, I mean, he didn't come that way. He didn't have a big M on the front of his chest that said, Messiah. He didn't walk around the seashore of Galilee with a halo over his head, drawing attention to his divinity and deity. When our Savior came, he came as a man among men. When our Savior came, he came as just a, a, another, another Jewish Galilean, one who came to live among us. And he didn't look at him and said, that's got to be the Messiah. That's got to be the one. That's got to be the one who... But he came as a man among men. In fact, it says he was one who came and was despised and rejected. The point being made in verse 3 is the Father will reveal him, but we will reject him. The Father will reveal him, but, but we will reject him. He was despised. Who despised him? The Pharisees despised him. In Matthew twelve twenty four, it says that this man cast out demons by Satan. That's what the Pharisees said. The Roman soldiers despised him. It says in Matthew 27, after weaving a crown of thorns, they, they put it upon his head and they put a reed in his right hand and they kneeled before him and they mocked him and said, Hail, you king of the Jews. He was despised by the Pharisees, despised by the Roman soldiers. He was despised by his own people. In the prologue to John, in John chapter 1, verse 12, it says he came to his own, but his own what? Knew him not. He was despised by the Pharisees, despised by the Romans, despised by his own people. The scriptures say in verse 3 he was forsaken. Forsaken by whom? Forsaken by one of his own disciples named Judas. He betrayed him. Forsaken by one of his own disciples named Peter. Three times Peter says, I do not know him, I do not know him, I do not know him. And then the most haunting cry from the cross. Christ spoke seven times from the cross. In fact, in our men's Bible study on Thursday mornings, we look at those seven sayings starting this Thursday. Join us, guys, 6.30. But the most haunting saying from the cross, My God, my God, why have you, what, forsaken me? He was despised. He was forsaken. He was a man of sorrows. Acquainted with grief. I love that old hymn we sang. Man of sorrows, what a name. For the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Christ could have come in pomp and circumstance. But he came with a humble entry in life. You know, when I think about that, I think applicationally, what about us? What about us and what about our lives and what about our lifestyle and what about our circumstance? It's easy to get caught up in the culture of our day and the wealth of our day and possessions of our day and materialism of our day. And I don't know about you, but uh, I like my stuff. You like your stuff? Just me. Nobody else? There we go. Two hands go up back there. Thank you. Thank you for your honesty. There we go. Now every hand goes up because you don't want to be guilty of lying. I like my stuff. And, you know, we get caught up in this stuff. I read an article in Leadership Journal recently, and a guy says, I wanted to get closer to the Savior. And so I went to stay in a monastery for a few days. I'd never been to a monastery before. I'll never forget the monk that showed me to the monastery. When he uh, looked at me, he said, I hope your stay is a, a blessed one. He took him to his room, actually. He said, I hope your stay is a blessed one. He said, I looked at the sparse room. No radio, no TV. I could bring my Bible and a book, and that was it. 
And he said, I looked at the sparse accommodations in that room. He said, I hope your stay is a blessed one. If you need anything, let me know. I'll teach you how to live without it. Right out. See, what, what do we have to have? There is some persistent quirk in our thinking that convinces us that temporal things will bring us permanent joy. That stuff will bring us joy. If there's anything I've learned in the last four months is that stuff doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I, I like my stuff. But believe me, on a scale of one to life, it doesn't matter a whole bunch. It doesn't matter. And I, I, I wish I could tell you I still don't have a materialistic streak in me. I do. We all do. Part of being in a fallen world. But the reality of it is when you think of stuff compared to life, what difference does it make? What difference does it really make? And sometimes we need our perspective jolted, and I can tell you that's happened to me. Just jolted. And the realization that clinging to him is more important than clinging to stuff. But there's still that quirk in us that loves temporal stuff. when we should be loving eternal stuff and eternal things. But we still like our stuff. All of us. Pastors are guilty. I was reminded of that when I read an email one of you sent me a couple of years ago. Two men crashed in a private plane on a deserted South Pacific island. That they survived, one of them brushed himself off and proceeded to run around the island like a madman, surveying their chances of survival. He came back to the other guy screaming, this island is uninhabited, there's no, no food source and no water source, we're going to die. The other man leaned back and said, don't worry about it, I make over $250,000 a week, we'll be okay. He looked and said, you don't understand, there's no food source, there's no water source, this island's uninhabited, we will not survive. And the guy said, I told you, I make over $250,000 a week, over a million dollars a month. We're going to be okay. Mystified, he screamed at the guy slowly. He said, we're doomed. No food, no water, deserted island. We're going to die. Unfazed, the guy said, I make over $250,000 a week. I tithe. My pastor's going to find us. <laughs> Stuff. What about you and your stuff? Christ came not in pop and circumstance, not like the opening ceremony of the Olympics, not even like Prince George in Britain this week. Came to Barnyard. And then he lived this life of great humility. Of humility. In fact, the scriptures say in Mark 10:45, he came not to be served, but to do what? To serve, to give his life as a ransom. That's what Isaiah 53 is all about. Came to give his life as a ransom for the many. He came as a humble servant. From heaven's throne room to feeding trough. From the presence of the Father to the presence of sinful man. From surrounded by angelic worship to come to man's rejection. The great humility of our Savior. It's amazing how God has a way of humbling us, doesn't it? When we get filled with our stuff, we get filled with pride, we get filled with ourselves, God has a way to humble us. In fact, the scriptures say God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. The scriptures say, take heed, take heed, lest you fall. Talking about the prideful. And it's amazing how God has a way of ripping pride out of our life when we're filled with it. I know I've experienced that, and I'm sure you have as well. Last year, one of the books I read was by a pastor who was recuper who talked about his recuperation from uh, open heart bypass surgery. 
that title of his book was interesting. It's uh, They Popped My Hood and Found Gravy on the Dipstick. It's an interesting title for open heart surgery. And uh, he talks about being humbled through everything he went through. And uh, he said, I decided after my surgery to begin to run to stay in better cardiac shape, as my physician suggested. So I entered my five first K after getting in shape. And he says, I remember the, the guy saying, runners on your mark, get set, go. And this adrenaline that rushed through my body. He said, after several hundred yards, I felt this is great. I had loosened up. This is going to be fun. I, I surprised myself at how fast I was actually running until I was passed by an 80-year-old speed walker wearing purple leg warmers. <laughs> Do you know how humiliating it is to be passed by an 80-year-old speed walker wearing purple leg warmers? To make it even worse, he started trash-talking me. <laughs> he looked at me and said, Sonny, be careful. You don't want to make a sweat anytime soon, do you? He said, as a pastor, I thought it's a good thing God doesn't smite people anymore because I'd call down fire from heaven on that old dude. <laughs> God has a way of humbling us. When we're prideful. He has a way of humbling us when we're prideful. Our Savior came in brokenness. Our Savior came in humility. It's John Wesley who said each morning in his prayer, let me be nothing and let Christ be my all in all. Great humility before our Savior. Great humility from our Savior. And it's amazing what God does to humble us. In the journey that I've been on the last four months, it's been humbling in many ways, humbling the number of people that have said we're praying for you, humbling the number of people that have come alongside and brought us meals and cared for us and and loved on us and how much we appreciate that. And and it's it's a journey where God has taken pride and broken me in some ways, didn't realize existed. And before the Savior, you recognize, man, there are things in my life that God had to deal with and he's dealt with. And so in the midst of that, what you learn is the goodness of God and the grace of God. And as we battle, we learn of all that God can do. And so as you do that, you recognize this is the Savior who came. He came not in pomp and circumstance, but in brokenness and humility. And the poverty of the Savior is followed by the passion of the Savior, the passion of our Savior. He passionately, we call it the Passion Week because he gave himself on our behalf. In verse 4, it says, surely, in fact, if you have a New American Standard or NIV, ten times you'll find in verses 4 through 6 the word, our, we, or us. I've circled in my Bible. Our, we, or us. Ten times. Uh, look at it. This is, this is about what he's done for us. Our griefs he bore, our sorrows he carried. We were esteemed stricken. Uh, we esteemed him stricken. And, and then you go to verse 5. Our transgressions, our iniquities, our well-being, uh, we are healed by his scourging. Us like sheep have gone astray. Us turned our own way. The iniquity of, uh, the, our iniquity has fallen upon him. Ten times we see it was in our place. When we read this, it's the, it's the Hebrew concept of a substitutionary atonement. He became our substitute. See, in the first century, they said he was smitten of God. If you, if you look at uh, the middle of verse 4, it says, We esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. They said he was smitten by God because he was blasphemous. He claimed to be God, but that's not what the text says. The text says he died in our place. He was our atonement. He was our sacrifice. He died on our behalf. 
In Leviticus 16, Leviticus 16 should make you think Day of Atonement. Day of Atonement is the Hebrew word Yom Kippur, the High Holy Day of Israel. In 1622, it's interesting, in that particular text on the Day of Atonement, the word bore that we read in Isaiah 53 is found there too. It says the goat shall bear, the word bore, same word, in itself, all the iniquities in a solitary land and be released in the wilderness. You see, on the Day of Atonement, there were two, two goats that were taken. One was slain, the blood was caught, the high priest would take it in the Holy of Holies, put it on the mercy seat, and God would look down through the blood to see his people. The other goat was called the scapegoat. And what the scapegoat would do is that the priest would lay his hands, transferring figuratively, symbolically, the sins of the people upon the goat. And they would release that goat in the wilderness saying he would bear our sins. And you go to Isaiah 53 in the, in the Hebrew, they, or the Hebrew people would understand exactly what he's talking about. Our griefs he bore. That's the scapegoat of Leviticus 16. He took our sins. He carried them to the desert. He was our substitute. He gave his life on our behalf. St. Augustine, the great church theologian, said, Christ without guilt took upon himself our punishment in order that he might expiate, that is, atone for, remove our guilt, and do away with our punishment. Christ was delivered for our sins that we might be delivered from our sins. That's what our Savior did. There's a great movie, and maybe you've seen it, It's called uh, To End All Wars. It's based on a book called uh, Miracle on the River Kwai by Ernest Gordon. Ernest Gordon became a strong believer, ultimately became the chaplain of Princeton University, what was the bastion of fundamentalism or evangelicalism. To End All Wars. If you haven't seen that movie, it's worth renting. And in that particular book and in the movie, what Gordon writes about and the movie speaks of or shows, depicts, it's a group of Scottish soldiers and they were so mistreated in the internment in the prison camp they were in that eventually they began to turn on one another. And they became barbarians to one another, barbarous to one another. They would steal food. They would steal clothing. When someone was dying, they would take their shoes. They would not help. They would not share. And it's a tragic story of what was taking place. Then one day a miracle happened. One day, coming back from their work on the River Kwai, they had two checkpoints where they checked all the tools. And the Japanese soldiers would do a count. And on this particular day, they were one shovel short. The commander of the Japanese soldiers was a vicious man. If you watch the movie or read the book, he was really a man with great hatred. And on this particular day, with the one shovel missing, he called soldiers forward, drew them to attention, and said he would kill all of the Scottish soldiers unless they admitted who stole, the soul, who stole the shovel. From the rank and file of the soldiers came one man. He admitted to taking the shovel. The Japanese commander took a different, took a shovel, and he beat him to death right there in front of all the soldiers. They picked up his body, came to the second checkpoint. And when they did the tool check, there was no missing shovel. Gordon writes this, there had been a miscount at the first checkpoint. Then word spread like wildfire through the entire camp. An innocent man in one unit had given his life to save the lives of all the others. Sound familiar? An innocent man gave his life so others could be saved. Gordon writes this incident had profound effect. The men begin to treat each other like brothers. They begin to share their food. They begin to share their clothes. 
They begin to care for one another when someone got sick. When the Allies came in and swept in, the survivors, human skeletons, lined up in front of their captors, and instead of attacking them, insisted, and I quote, no more hatred, no more killing. What we need now is forgiveness. You see, that's what Isaiah 53 is all about. Isaiah 53 is all about an innocent man giving his life so that we too might have eternal life and life with others. It's God's amazing grace. The gospel is man substitutes himself for God, but God has given a substitute for us. He has given his life on our behalf. In verse 5, it says all of us, like, or at the end of verse 5, it says the chastening of our well-being fell upon him and by his scourging we are healed. This verse has been misused by a lot of people to teach that there's physical healing promised in the atonement, that, that healing is promised in the atonement. Look at the context. He's talking about something much greater than physical healing. He's talking about eternal healing. He, he's talking about the healing of the soul, the healing of the heart. God's amazing grace is that we can be spiritually healed, healed from sin and saved from eternal damnation. That's a miracle. So some of you are asking yourself, so Pastor Gary, are you saying God does not heal? That's not what I'm saying. God can heal. God can heal through the, the knife of a physician or through the technology of today. Or God, he can heal through medicine or through miracle. God can do both. He still heals today. He always has been and will be in the business of healing. Does he always heal? Is this a promise given to everyone who has cancer, everyone who has a cold, everyone who's sick? This is not a promise for physical healing. It's a promise for eternal healing. Does God always heal? Listen to me. He does. He does. Sometimes that healing is on earth. Sometimes it's in heaven. Sometimes he physically heals us here, but sometimes he physically heals us by taking us to his presence, a place where there's no more sickness, no more sorrow, no more disease, and no more death. And I say amen and amen. Do I pray for healing for you and for me? Yes, I do. But let me tell you something. Look around the room. It's okay, you can look around. It's Sundays, nobody looks around the room. You always look straight at me. Take a look around the room. Got friends over there, you can wave at them. Over there, you can wave at them. You don't have any friends over there? Yeah. Hey, let me tell you something. About seven decades from now, none of us are going to be here. I'm not saying Christ is coming. I'm just saying, you know, you're 50, you're not going to live seven more decades. You're 40, you're not going to make seven more decades. You're 30, you're not going to make seven more decades. And so the reality of it is we're all headed. We're all headed to eternity. The question is, where are you going to spend it? Some kids said first hour, I'm only 10. <laughs> you may make it 70 years. Okay? Most of us won't. We all have a short leash compared to eternity. And our Savior came so that we can be healed eternally. Only if the sacrifice of the suffering servant is accepted will you experience that forgiveness and be eternity with him. Remember the five-year-old boy? He, he, was, he exasperated his mother every day, and so she, he got into mischief and all kinds of things. And so she finally turned to him one day and said, Jimmy, how do you expect to get into heaven behaving like that? And he looked at her and he said, Mom... I'll do the same thing I do here. I'll run in and out, in and out, in and out, keep slamming the door until St. Peter says, for heaven's sake, Jimmy, come in or stay out. <laughs> and I'll say, I want in. 
You know, we laugh at that. A lot of people think that's the way it happens. That's not the way it is. It's only when the shed blood of the lamb who gave his life, the suffering servant slaughtered on your behalf, is accepted by you and applied to your heart that you will experience eternity in the presence of the living God. The passivity of the Savior, what do I mean by that? Well, he was passive. He was passive. If you drop down to the next verses, the next triplet of verses, 7 through 9, by the way, these verses are all in triplet, 1 through 3, 4 through 6, 7 through 9, 10 through 12. He was oppressed and afflicted. He did not open his mouth like a lamb that's led to slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before his shears. He did not open his mouth. And not only that, look at verse 9. He was assigned a grave with wicked men. That's, that's those on earth, yet he was in a, with a rich man in his death. How many years was this written before Christ came to the planet? What did I say? 700 years. 700 years. Now, did this really happen? Look at these verses. Then Caiaphas, the high priest, stood up and said to Jesus, Are you, gonna, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? Jesus remained silent before Caiaphas, the high priest. 700 years later, Pilate asked him, Aren't you going to answer? See how many things they're accusing you of. But Jesus made no reply. 700 years after Isaiah writes, Before Caiaphas, before Pilate, and then before Herod, Herod plies him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. 700 years before Christ was even born, Isaiah writes, He will be like a sheep who is silent before his shearers, before Caiaphas the high priest, before Pilate the governor, before Herod the king. He's silent. Fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah. It says his grave will be assigned or his grave will come from a rich man. As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea. His name was what? We all know him as Joseph of Arimathea. Fulfilling the prophecy written 700 years before by Isaiah the prophet. Amazing. The book you hold in your hand is an amazing thing because God has given it and fulfilled it through Jesus our Savior. Amen? Amen. When people spit in his face, he didn't spit back. When bystanders slapped him, he didn't slap back. When a, rip, when a whip ripped through his sides, he didn't turn and command the waiting angels to stuff the whip down the soldier's throat. And when human hands fastened him, the divine hands to a cross with spikes, it wasn't the soldiers who held the hand steady. It was God who held them steady. Wow. He didn't retaliate. Didn't seek revenge. Didn't get even with those. In fact, when he was on the cross, what did he do? He prayed for him. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Instead of seeking revenge, he sought mercy for those there. I don't know about you, but when he's on the cross and they're mocking him and doing all this, I want to say, Jesus, defend yourself. Jesus, get a little revenge. Jesus, do something. Jesus, just turn a few of them into statues for a little while. Get every angel in heaven at his command. We may be people of revenge, but our Savior wasn't. Our Savior wasn't. What about you and revenge? What about you and getting even? A friend who's betrayed you? Somebody who's turned on you? Teacher who's haunted you? Spouse that's rejected you? Want just a little bit of revenge? I love the story I used on Mother's Day a few years ago. A lady writes to my three-year-old son, opened the birthday gift from my mom. His grandmother was a water pistol for a three-year-old. He squealed with delight as he headed to the sink. I wasn't so pleased, writes a lady. I turned to my mom and said, I'm surprised at you. Don't you remember how we used to drive you crazy with water guns? She looked at me and smiled and said, oh, yeah, I remember. <laughs> Just a little bit of revenge. Hey, our Savior didn't seek revenge. He dishes out mercy. And aren't we glad?
aren't we glad? When we look at our sinless Savior, he suffered in silence. Suffering is not a popular theme today. But here's the reality. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in the cost of discipleship, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who gave his life in World War II, great read, recent biography on him. The call to serve Christ includes the call to suffer for Christ. We don't want to hear that. We don't want to hear that. In a day of health and wealth and everybody wanting to be happy, not many people preach on this. But my friends, sometimes we're called to suffer. No matter what form suffering takes, it hurts. You feel the horrible rejection. You've done what's right, but you've been mistreated wrongly. In the midst of all this, remember, God has not abandoned you. He's not forgotten you. He's never left you. God understands the heartache brought on you by the evil he mysteriously permits so he might bring you to a tender, sensitive walk with him. God is good. Jesus is real. Your present circumstance is notwithstanding Chuck Swindoll. Ever feel abandoned by God? He's still good. He's still there. He still cares for you. I pray that that penetrates from my head to my heart. You pray it penetrates from your head to your heart every single day. The portion of the servant, if you look in the next triplet of verses, all the way down in the last verse, verse 12, I will allot him a portion with the great. He will divide the reward with the strong because he poured out himself unto death. His portion, his reward is great. You know what's interesting? Isaiah really starts this whole passage in the previous chapter. It really starts in verse in chapter 52. I've got the NIV. How many of you use the NIV out there? Let me see your hands there, a majority of you. I've got the NIV on my iPad. Do you all remember my password? I'm having a... There we go. There it is. Verse 50, chapter 52, look at verse 13. This is where Isaiah really begins this passage. And it's really where this passage ends. He says his portion, his reward, will be with the great. In Isaiah 52, 13, he says, See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised up, he will be lifted up, he will be exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond any human being. His form more beyond human likeness. He will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. He'll be lifted up and exalted. See, here's the great news. The suffering servant one day comes back, not as a lamb that he came as, but as a lion and the conquering king. I love the way Tony Evans put that in one of his sermons. When he comes back, he's not coming back to take sides. He's coming back to take over. See, when he comes back, it's not to take sides. He's coming back to take over. It is my prayer that you allow him to take over your life right now before it's too late. Isaiah 53, the crowning jewel of the Old Testament. Because in the midst of this tragedy, we see great triumph. Let's conclude by watching this video that demands a response.
Have you responded? Have you trusted Christ and Christ alone for eternal life? Father, thank you. Thank you for this beautiful portrayal of the suffering servant. If you're here today and you aren't sure if you've ever accepted Christ as your Savior for the forgiveness of your sins, I don't know how to paint a clearer picture of what he's done for you. And I pray that right now in the stillness of your heart, right where you sit, you'll say, Lord Jesus, I accept you as my Savior. I ask you for the forgiveness of my sin. I ask you to wipe it away. I ask you for the forgiveness only you could give. And if you know the Savior, but you recognize other stuff you've placed before the Savior, desire for things that you shouldn't be doing or things you shouldn't have, do you make this morning a morning of confession? Or maybe you know the Savior, walk with the Savior. You told others about this beautiful Savior who did all this for you. Father, we thank you. We go our way in your name. Amen.